0: Uh, why don't we uh, begin with prayer father we just again look to you tonight Uh, we we just uh, love your word and again we're grateful to you that you have loved us enough to reveal your plans for the days to come and we do ask you lord um, as we do each week that you'd give us understanding we we recognize that the bible is the sword of your spirit and and you are able to help us understand um, that your spirit teaches us. And, and so we ask you, Lord, for that. Just give us the ability to grab a hold of these things, and may um, the things we learn change our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned, uh, I think, the first week of this that, uh, you know, every generation has thought that you know, theirs was gonna be the time in which Jesus might come back. And for hundreds of years, actually thousands of years, people have thought that. And so for us to sit here and presume that we are that generation where he's coming back, I I can see that a lot of people would be skeptical of that. In fact, Peter even said that in the last days, people will say, where is the sign of his coming? Everyone's been saying all this time he's coming and where is it? And it hasn't come. But I, uh, I, I, as I look at just the world in which we live, I'm convinced that things are just different now, and um, as we look at our, our society, if, as we look at the changes that have taken place historically, as I mentioned that first week, you know for 6,000 years of human history, everything was basically the same. You planted your crops, if you needed to see at night, you used a torch or you know a lamp or something, and then we're. We're going, we're going to Saturn. I mean, it's just an entirely different world and it's exponential how knowledge is increasing and things change so quickly. And then I look around at certain things related to um, maybe the earth and the weather and fires and earthquakes and all these types of things and it seems like things are, are heating up just a little bit. And then I look at even the, the political Realm of things, and you look at what's happening in the world. Regardless of your position, for example, of our current president, uh, I don't think a single one of us in this room thought he would be elected as the president of the United States. And I think that, I think God is doing some orchestration of some kind, again, that's not to speak in terms of this administration at all, except to recognize that God is doing things all over the world and I think we need to be um, having our eyes open. Now, uh, there are new books. I hope you got one when you came in. Hope we did not uh, run out again. And um, I'd like to do a quick summary from page five, first of all. And this week I have a pointer so that I can, I think I can use, oh, that's, oh, well, that might work. No, it's a little small. Um, let me just go down this for, uh, on this particular one, on page five, I just wanna get us uh, the, the, the context. Every week I think you need to just see a little bit of the context of the whole thing and then where we are as in that timeline. So um, we talked about the fact, number one, that the seven churches represent the church age. Maybe I can't get that up there, the church age. And um, <clears throat> some people feel like after number one is when this event called the rapture is gonna take place. So they think as soon as the church age is done, the rapture is gonna take place, and then you move to number two. Uh, there are gonna be signs that are going to point to the end times. And um, Lord willing, in two weeks, we'll be covering these because Jesus talked about these, and they're found in Revelation as things are getting closer to the time of the return of Christ. A bunch of things are going to be happening. False teachers and messiahs, A, on your outline. There'll be wars and conflicts increasing and they're gonna be all over the place. So uh, I've had friends that are thinking, well, I think the world's gonna get more peaceful and then Jesus is gonna show up. That's not what I see. See, the natural disasters are going to increase. I, I think the earth is gonna wear out like a garment is the way it's described. Four, there's going to be widespread death, and I think that's due to pestilence. Uh, e, there is the unraveling of societal fabric. You know, in the last days, it talks about the fact that kids will be disobedient to their parents. There'll be a lot of rebellion. There'll be a lot of pride. There'll be a lot of uh, materialism. All those things were predicted. Uh, F, an increase in knowledge. And then uh, the, the the sign that's the last sign before Jesus, I believe, is physically returning to the earth to rule is that the gospel will be preached throughout the world, and then Jesus said the end will come. Now, uh, the third thing that's gonna happen in this timeline is that the Antichrist will sign a seven-year agreement with Israel. And um, I personally think that uh, Christ is gonna come back after that and that's that's something i want to talk about in a couple of weeks when we get to chapter 7 i want to demonstrate why i believe that the rapture happens in revelation 7 it doesn't happen in revelation 3 or 4. and it's important to realize that but there's going to be a seven-year agreement with israel now one thing to recognize about that seven-year agreement is that things have to get bad before they are going to get better in other words right now a seven-year agreement for peace wouldn't be that big a deal, but what if things really heated up in the Middle East? And of course, we're watching that. I get newsletters related to what's happening over in Israel. I'm just watching that closely, what all's happening in the world, around that part of the world, and things are gonna get bad, and then somebody's gonna come offering peace. And of course, Paul said in Thessalonians, when people are saying, peace, peace, watch out, because that's when the destruction comes because, number four, the Antichrist is gonna break his agreement with Israel in the middle of the seven-year period. Now, throughout all this seven-year period, things are getting worse in terms of A through G in number two, the wars, the false teachings, the death. There'll be more earthquakes, there'll be more famines. I think all these things are gonna be happening. But this uh, Antichrist is gonna break his agreement with Israel in the middle of it and begin an intense persecution against the Jews And this is where Jesus said in Matthew 25, go flee. When you hear about this guy in the temple interrupting the sacrifice and proclaiming himself to be God, get out of there. Don't even go back and get your stuff. You've got to run. Uh, Five, persecution will break out against God's people then, and that's predicted, again, in the Old and New Testament. Six, a remnant of Jews will be protected, uh, namely 144,000, in a place called Petra, That's kind of interesting in the book of Revelation because the devil's gonna try to drown them. They're gonna go in the caves. And uh, I think it's literal. I think he's gonna come up with this idea, well, let's flush a bunch of water down then and drown them all, and and God's gonna create like an earthquake to take care of the water and protect them. Uh, Seven, this is where I think the rapture is gonna take place, sometime toward the end of that seven-year period. And so I think we're gonna see this. Now, again, if this time Uh, table is right, and again, when we get to seven, I wanna explain why I believe what I do, but if this timetable is right, and this is where the rapture is, realize that we will know. This will not be a question mark for us. We will recognize the agreement. We will see some of these things, and we'll have a sense, a pretty good idea, what's coming in the days ahead. Eight, Christ is gonna return to judge the world at the end of the seven-year period. One event I could have put in here Maybe should have put it in right before that would be the Battle of Armageddon. That's going to be uh, at the end of that seven-year period, the kings of the Earth are going to uh, stand up against Christ. There's going to be a battle that's going to take place. Christ, of course, is to win, is going to win and uh, set up a kingdom on the Earth. Nine. He's going to reign for a1,000 years. I think that's literal. Uh, number 10: one last battle is going to take place after the millennium. So at the end of this 1,000 years, you know Jesus is gonna do every single thing right. For a 1,000 years, he's gonna rule justly, and yet when you get to the end of it, they're still gonna turn on him. And in some ways, I think it's an indictment of all of humanity to say, listen, even with everything right, you can't get it right. And number 11, Judgment Day takes place for unbelievers. And then number 12, there's gonna be a new heaven and a new earth. Now, last week, in, in our timeline, we talked about the church age. And I mentioned the fact that I felt like the churches in chapters two and three are, are several things. I think that they are real churches. I think there are, there are seven kinds of churches as well. Uh, I think they may be seven kinds of churches, specifically in the last days. But I also think that they might be timelines. In other words, I think it could be God's uh, timetable Uh, And the last church of the seven is the Church of Laodicea, which would represent the age in which we are. By the way, someone asked a question last week, and I don't think I answered it real well, but they asked a question about one of the churches that was gonna be spared from the wrath to come. And, um, And they wondered how that could be if the church isn't even around anymore. And um, one thing to understand about biblical prophecy is that it usually has double and triple fulfillment. In fact, in the Old Testament, there are prophecies where the first part of the sentence refers to the first coming of Christ, and the second part refers to the second coming of Christ. And so there's just a mystery there. So when I look at the churches, and when I say I think they might be a a picture of a timeline, well, I think that when you get to the seven churches as periods of time, it's, It's more the idea that that particular church, it's not time yet for the wrath to come. In other words, they're gonna be spared it. There was a, a, a prophecy specifically for the church in John's day. I think there are promises that relate to all churches that overcome but when we're looking at those in terms of a timeline, I'm just saying that this is fleshing out. The one church that was brought up last week was one that I think is gonna be spared the wrath to come because there's still another couple churches before that one, so. Now, um, this week we're gonna look at what happens in heaven before everything breaks loose. Uh, You'll notice on your outlines that I left, it's really basically a a blank page and we're gonna be going verse by verse here in just a little bit and I encourage you to write down some of these references but there's a scene that takes place in heaven. It happens a few times in the book of Revelation. You get a sense that, that before God is getting ready to do something, we get a glimpse of what is happening up, you know, the little committee or meeting upstairs, what's happening in heaven, and then it's all going to be unleashed. And so we're just getting this glimpse, and this, this happens a few times in the book of Revelation. Uh, and so chapters uh, four and five are this glimpse of, of the scene in heaven and what's going to be taking place. And the most important quality that I think is, is evidenced by that scene is the holiness of God. I think the reason that God gives us a picture of what's happening in heaven is to give us confidence in terms of his right to judge the world. And it establishes, first of all, his glory and his holiness. And certain things are gonna take place in heaven and then they're gonna be fleshed out on earth. And I think sometimes we need that vision. In fact, I think this might be encouraging for whoever's alive during this time to realize that God is in heaven and God is in control and God is glorious. In Psalm 63, one and two, the psalmist David said, God, you are my God, I earnestly seek you, I thirst for you, my body faints for you, in a land that is dry, desolate, and without water, so I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and glory. He's describing the fact he'd go to the temple and he'd look upon God and he'd be refreshed in terms of God's strength and God's glory and God's holiness, and and it would draw him closer to God, and I think that's part of what this vision is supposed to uh, have on us. In Revelation chapter four and verse one then, I wanna begin with the first verse, and we're not gonna, uh, I'm gonna be jumping back and forth between Daniel, if you were here this morning, I talked about Daniel, and the book of Revelation. Uh, I want you to notice throughout how they line up. It's really remarkable when you realize that the book of Daniel was written about, as we discovered a minute ago, 600 years before um, Christ came, and then, of course, uh, Revelation is written maybe 90 AD, and yet they, they line up completely. So Revelation 4 and verse 1 begins to launch what we're looking at tonight, where John says, after this, I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Now, I want to note two things about this. Part of the reason that I'm of the opinion that these churches are actually periods of church history Uh, throughout time, besides the fact that they they line up so well with church history, is the way he begins this verse and the way he ends this verse. He begins this verse by saying, after this, and then he ends this by, by saying, what must take place after this? Well, he's describing as if those things are historic events, and then after those things happen... You know, now it could be at the first part of that when he says, after this I looked, it could be after after I saw that first vision of the churches, after this I looked, and that's possible, but it also might be referring to the fact that after this, excuse me, after all these churches, after this timeline, it's time to do something new. Now, tonight I wanna look at how Daniel chapter seven lines up. In fact, I'd like to put together a chart of this In Daniel chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, uh, we begin to see a description of what this last kingdom is going to be like in the seven-year period, the the kingdom of the Antichrist, what that's going to be like. Now, Daniel, in in Daniel chapter 7, describes a series of countries or kingdoms that are going to come and go. But the last one is very unique, and this is, again, this will be sign, uh, setting up the timeline for Revelation because, as I mentioned, the, the next thing perhaps on the, on the calendar, in terms of the prophetic calendar, is an antichrist that's gonna come and he's gonna set up a kingdom. Well, Daniel describes that kingdom. In fact, Daniel describes the fact that it's gonna also take place in seven years. But let's read what he had to say in Daniel 7, verses 7 and 8. Daniel writes, While I was watching in the night visions, a fourth beast appeared, frightening and dreadful and incredibly strong with large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and it trampled with its feet wherever whatever was left. It was different from all the beasts before it and it had ten horns. While I was considering the horn, suddenly another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. There were eyes in this horn like a man's, and it had a mouth that spoke arrogantly. Now, I'm convinced that this description from Daniel chapter seven is a description of the the kingdom of the Antichrist, and you discover that it's a a 10-nation confederacy, or at least there are 10 leaders of this this kingdom. The 10 horns represent 10 leaders in Daniel's vision of this. <clears throat> and so you have a 10-nation confederacy. By the way, uh, when I first became acquainted with prophecy oh, many, many years ago, people felt like the 10-nation confederacy was the, what was called the common market back then, or now it'd be the European Union, a confederation of, of European countries. And the reason people felt that was the case or maybe still do feel that's the case is that in the book of Revelation, this new kingdom is described as Rome. And it's in that part of the world, and, and these are you know, countries that are over there, European countries that kind of fit the model there. But I don't, <clears throat> I don't believe that these 10 nations here are, um, I don't think they're the European nations, what I think they are are Islamic nations. And I want to get into that at some point if we have time to compare Ezekiel chapters 36 to 38. If you write down that reference, Ezekiel is describing the rebirth of the nation of Israel, how they they were like dry bones that are being brought to life. And it describes certain things about the end times. And I think that the final battle that's going to take place in the Armageddon battle is ultimately a battle against Isaac and Ishmael, between Jacob and Esau. And so you realize it's in a sense, it's, it's a fight against the uh, son of promise who was Isaac. Abraham's son, Isaac, was the son of promise. Miraculous, born to a woman that's 90 years old, the son of promise. Ishmael was sent away. And a lot of these are, uh, Arab nations, and actually I mean Arab, but it, they'll be Islamic as well, a lot of the Arab nations come from Ishmael's line, and then you got Jacob and Esau, and God says, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I, I hated, which I don't wanna get into the explanation of that, but you realize that there's this a battle between good and evil, or between the two sons, the son of promise and, and the one that's not the son of promise. And I find it noteworthy that in the last times here, Christianity is the number one re- religion, number two is Islam. And it's, it's tilting the other way. And is it possible that the nations that are going to be part of this confederacy are actually ones that are in the physical place where Babylon used to be? Because in the book of Revelation, we, it talks a lot about Babylon as well, you know, and that's where Iraq is, that's where Iran is, and all these other countries that are gonna come against Israel. <clears throat> now, one thing I wanna mention about Daniel's description here Uh, Daniel says that there was uh, this beast which represents the kingdom. It had 10 horns which represent 10 different kings or kingdoms and then it says a little horn popped up and it defeated three of the other horns and so what you're gonna end up with is you've got 10, then one is gonna rise up, a new one it seems from the midst of the 10, an antichrist, probably the antichrist, he's gonna attack three of the 10 so that you're gonna end up with an eight-nation confederacy that would form the basis of this final kingdom. Now, a couple things about the way this uh, cre- this beast, which again, the kingdom is described as a beast, it's described very unique. Uh, all the other beasts that, that um, Daniel saw were kind of, they, they were odd, but they weren't like this last one. This last one is described as having like iron teeth. And it's a description of the fact that this final kingdom is gonna be a, a demonic one. I think it's gonna be a Satan-run kingdom. In fact, if you read Revelation and you know what's coming, part of the storyline of this kingdom is that someone's gonna be killed and then brought back to life. A true antichrist following the example of Jesus. But it's, I think it's, it's a physical kingdom but also a supernatural kingdom. Now, at the end of that seven-year period, Jesus comes back and Daniel talks about that in Daniel 7 and 13 and 14. And so you skip to the first part I read about this beast with the 10 horns. Now we come to the end, verses 13 and 14, and Daniel writes, I continued watching in the night visions, and I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus, of course, his favorite way of describing himself was son of man. He was claiming to be this, I'm convinced. I saw one like a son of man, like a, someone like a man coming with the clouds of heaven. That sounds like Jesus too, doesn't it, in Matthew? He was gonna go up in the clouds and then he's gonna come back in the same way. He approached the Ancient of Days, which is God the Father, and when, when was escorted before him. He was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. This is speaking, of course, of the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. And this morning, if you were here, I quoted from Philippians how one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, and all authority has been given to Jesus, and he's gonna rule forever and ever. Well, Daniel described this scene and it comes right after, you get this odd beast with the seven rulers and, and this really horrible seven years of, of tribulation, and Jesus comes back. In between those two sections, in between the two that we just looked at, in verses nine through 10, we get a scene from heaven. And now I'm looking at this, thinking this is this just is just like Revelation. It's got you got the beast there, and you've got Jesus coming back. But be, before Jesus actually comes back at the end, in be, wedged in between those two are these verses. And I want you to pay attention to the description here: Daniel seven, nine, and ten. <clears throat> As I kept watching, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow and the hair of his head like the whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire. Its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was convened and books were opened. Now we head back to Revelation so we go to Revelation chapter four, beginning in verse two, and we see the scene that John is describing in heaven here. Now I think you have the timeline. You can see what's happening here. You've got a, the, the beast kingdom, and then in the, the next thing that's in Daniel is this scene in heaven. And you've got the Ancient of Days and Christ is ushered into his presence and he's described as a glorious and words like fire are being used to describe him and then after that comes the Son of Man being ushered in and it's the Millennial Kingdom. So, Revelation four beginning in verse two. Immediately, sorry, I touched a button and it shot past me here. Okay, immediately I was in the spirit and a throne was set there in heaven. I remember, we just kind of read about that. A throne was set there in heaven. One was seated on the throne, and the one seated looked like jasper and carnelian stone. A rainbow that looked like an emerald surrounded the throne. Let's just stop at this point and talk just briefly about it. These are all symbols I mentioned one of the weeks that at the very beginning, I guess it would have had to have been the first week in Revelation chapter one, Jesus specifically said, I'm gonna be showing you symbols. So these represent things. And you say, what are these stones? These stones are beautiful. They are enduring. They are valuable and they're pure. Somehow he sees this image and it, it conjures this up. Now, John is trying to describe this. I don't know what this would be like. But he sees this figure on a throne and he's reminded of these precious gems And you say, well, why would that be the case? Well, because they're beautiful, enduring, valuable, and pure, it's a picture of God in His glory. Also, though, there were gems on the breastplate that were worn by the priest as he came into the presence of God, the Holy of Holy. Now, it says here there was a rainbow around the throne. This is not, I don't believe, a description of the colors of the rainbow, it is the description of the shape of it. It was shaped like a rainbow. Now where do we find a rainbow? Well, we find a rainbow back in the Old Testament in Genesis when we read about a flood. And I think the rainbow is symbolic of the fact that God's gonna show mercy in the midst of judgment. And so God told Noah, when you see that rainbow, you know that God will never destroy the world again completely like, like he did with, with, with a flood. But now the rainbow is back here, and what is it a picture of? Well, Christ, God's gonna judge the world, just like he did in Noah's day, but it won't be total. There's gonna be a brand new start, just like Noah experienced a brand new start. Confin- continuing in verse four, around the throne there were 24 thrones, and on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with gold crowns on their heads. Who are these people? I'm convinced that these are uh, the 12 um, children of Israel and the 12 apostles, or at least they represent that group. Whether they're the actual literal ones, I I have a feeling they are. And the reason I say that is that Jesus was asked by his disciples, probably on several occasions, Um, Can I have the privilege of being on your right hand when you come into your kingdom? Can I sit on your left hand? They're they're viewing, the disciples viewed that they were gonna be ruling with Christ and Jesus said that was gonna happen. And so when you see this scene, you see that there are 12 and 12. Now in biblical numerology, uh, 12 is the number associated with ruling, power, or authority. At some point, I have a list of what the different numbers mean, but 12 is is a picture of ruling power and authority. And I think that these are people representing all the believers of God throughout time. And so again, you've got this scene where God is on the throne. You've got the rainbow overhead here. You've got 24 thrones representing the whole Old and New Testament, and they're all together there, and it appears that they're convening some kind of of a court. Verse five, flashes flashes of lightning and rumblings of thunder came from the throne. What would that mean? Well, I think it means a storm is coming. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now again, there's a question whether or not these are seven angels that are gonna be carrying out God's judgment or whether it's the sevenfold Holy Spirit. Seven, again, is the number of completion, and so it it's, it's would be the, the Holy Spirit in his glory. I tend to think it's the Holy Spirit because the scene has the Father already, and it's got the Son, and this may be the Holy Spirit. Verse six, something like a sea, similar to crystal, was also before the throne. Four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back We're in the middle and around the throne. Let's close in prayer. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Okay, a sea of crystals. Uh, In in the Bible, the, the image of a sea is a thing that separates. It's all, all, on and on, many, many occasions in the Bible, when you read about a sea, it's a description of separation, even with creation, how the land separated out from the sea. And so I think this, this sea of what looks like glass that's by the throne is a picture of the holiness of God and the fact that there's a separation between God and the others that are here. But then there are these, some creatures there, four living creatures. It says they're covered with eyes in front and in back. And they were in the middle and around the throne. And they're kind of unique. Now, what would be the eyes about? Well, I think this is talking about they see what's going on, everything. It could be, again, maybe a picture of God, but I don't think that's it. I think it's God's, uh, I think these are cherubim. I'll talk about that in a minute, but I think that they're ones that do see what's happening all over the world. But it describes them, but they're just kind of unusual because, first of all, they have a, a bunch of eyes. Seven, the first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like a calf. The third living creature had the face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings, they were covered with eyes around and inside. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, 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 Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is coming. A lot of speculation about who, the nature of these creatures. Again, I think they're actually, they, they may be actual creatures because we read about them actually in the Old Testament as well. In Ezekiel 1, 4 through 14, you'll see a similar vision of these creatures. And so they might be actual uh, again, a uh, cherubim. Uh, but many people have noted that the four creatures or the, the descriptions of these match the gospels. The first one is a lion. And, and Matthew is the, the gospel that aligns with a lion. Jesus is the lion of Judah. He's presented as the king. That's what Matthew's gospel. Mark, the theme of Mark is servant. And what is the creature there? Well, it's a calf. You know, it's an ox or it's something like that. The third living creature had the face like a man. Well, Luke focuses on the humanity of Jesus. He's called Son of Man throughout in all the Gospels, but Luke especially focuses on humanity. And then the fourth one is like a flying eagle. It's the heavenly view, and that's the Gospel of John. We can't say for sure that's the case. It could have some other... Um, ideas around it. But um, I think God is trying to show this idea that everything's getting ready to be summed up. We're all here. It's all ready to go. And they're singing, holy, holy, holy. Now, they have six wings. And again, some creatures are mentioned in the Old Testament that also have six wings. Two of the wings are used to cover the eyes so that they don't look upon God. But they are fascinating creatures. And whether they're just symbolic or real, we don't know for sure. Verse nine, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne. That's number one, they fall down before him. Number two, they worship the one who lives forever and ever. Three, they cast their crowns before the throne which in the Roman games, many times the winner would take his crown, which was really a ceremonial wreath, and he'd offer it to the gods. And so this is a picture of offering the crown to God. And then fourth, they say, O Lord, our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things, and because of your will they exist and were created. Now again, it's setting up the scene for what's about to take place. It is beautiful description of heaven, and it establishes God's holiness and part of His glory. We're not done yet with His description, but now we move to chapter five, in verse one. We read, "Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on the inside and on the back." Shows that there's um, so much text, and it means so much is coming. It's just getting ready to unfold all that's about to happen here. It is sealed with seven seals. The word that's, by the way, used for this scroll is the Greek word biblion, from which we get our term Bible. Now, the way this scroll seems to be is that it's set up in such a way that you, you remove the first seal and you'll come to a certain point, but there'll be then a second seal And you'll come to a certain point and then will be the third seal so that you're opening them one at a time. This scroll one at a time here. Verse two, I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, which is the first of 20 times loud voice is gonna appear in Revelation. In a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scrolls and break its seals? But no one... In heaven, or on earth, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or even look at it. That's kind of a big deal if you think about it. Again, sometimes I've I've had discussions with people about Jesus and his deity and whether he's really God, and it's it's sections like this. We're going to discover in a minute that he's the one that's allowed to open this scroll, but there is nobody that's qualified to open it. There's nobody because Jesus is unique. Now, in, in Bible times, if you broke a seal that did not belong to you, it was a capital offense. You were not allowed to open a, a document that was a Roman seal on it that was not yours. If you did, you could be put to death for that. And so this is very, a very, very serious moment that's taking place there. Who can open this? There's nobody Verse four, and I cried and cried because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even look at it. Notice the the, the the issue is worthiness. There's no one worthy, it seems. Verse five, then one of the elders said to me, stop crying, look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has been victorious so that he may open the scroll and its seven seal. So he's described in two ways here. He's called the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he's called the root of David. This lion term comes from Genesis 49 and verse 9 and other places where a prophecy was made concerning one of the sons of Israel, Judah, that his lion, he would be a lion. It's actually described that you are a lion. And it was a picture of the fact that Judah, someone from his family line would rule forever and ever, and so Jesus is called the Lion of Judah, and it's a picture of, of course, a lion we view as the, the king of the beasts. but he's also described here as the Root of David. One of the references where you read about the Root of David is Isaiah 11 and 1. Both of these are messianic descriptions. Both of them are Lion of Judah and the Root of David. You say, what's the Root of David? Well, you could picture a tree with its roots and everything, but then at a certain point, the tree is completely cut down. But it's not dead. And then at a certain point, something begins to sprout, a new tree begins to grow out of the root. And Jesus is described as the one who's growing out of the root of David. He's gonna be the fulfillment of the prophecies, the one who's carrying on uh, to become the king that will reign forever and ever. And because he was was victorious, he's allowed to open the scroll with the seven seals. So Jesus is the one unfolding this. Verse six, then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb. Now this I find is a little bit interesting because it just described him as a a lion. I saw a lion. And then the next thing, and then I saw a slaughtered lamb. You see all the symbolism, of course, and I think most of us can figure out what's happening here. This is a picture of both the first and the second coming of Jesus. And so he's first of all seen as this lion of Judah. He's gonna be the ruler that's gonna rule forever and ever. But then he's seen as this slaughtered lamb. And that's the basis of his ability to open the scroll. It says he was standing between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had, and now this is symbolism, seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth, seven horns, seven eyes. Horns are a symbol of power or authority. Seven is the number of completion. It's the divine number. And so it's picturing the fact he is the sole, complete, fulfilled ruler. And of course, the fact that it's the seven spirits of God or the sevenfold spirit of the Holy Spirit also speaks, I think, to his deity. So he comes up, but he's looking like a slaughtered lamb. Verse seven, it says, he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. Someone has um, noted that this picture here of going up to this throne and then taking this is, is actually kind of a, a symbol of um, something that happened in biblical times. A guy named Beasley Murray puts it this way. It has been frequently recognized that the vision of chapter five gives us a Christian prophet's version of the enthronement ceremony known in the ancient world when its potentates ascended their thrones Here the king is Christ, his domain is the universe, and his throne is the throne of God. The steps of enthronement are commonly described as exaltation, presentation, and enthronement. And so really what's happening here is Jesus is being formally welcomed into this role as the king of kings and lord of lords. It's a ceremony of sorts, and it's a glorious ceremony as he receives this. Verses 8 through 10. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures, which again might represent the four gospels, four um, ways of presenting the gospel, and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, uh, clearly in worship, again, if we question about the deity of Christ. Each one had a harp and gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, it seems to me that most of the praying that's done in the book of Revelation is actually for justice and judgment to come. Because we find in one of the other scenes that the souls of those who were martyred during the seven-year period, those that were put to death for their faith are crying out from under the throne, when, O Lord, are you gonna deal justice? When are you gonna make things right? Verse nine, it says, and they sang a new song, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because, four things again, you were slaughtered and you redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. Three, you made them a kingdom and priests to our God for and they will reign on the earth. Now again, I think, I think this is us. By the way, this talks about the fact this word purchase means to redeem. It means to pay a price to secure the release of someone. But this is making the point that because Jesus died on the cross, he bought you, he bought me. And we belong to Christ here. And it's people from every, it says every tribe and language and people and nation. Some others have spelled out what's the difference between some of those terms. Well, it's representative of of every lineage, Uh, every language, every race, and every political background, all four of those. And they've been made into a kingdom and priests to our God. Some of you might remember that um, in the Old Testament, God met the Israelites out on Mount Sinai and he was gonna give them the Ten Commandments and the mountain was on fire when all of this happened. And um, as, as they were gathered around that, and God said to them that he wanted them to become a kingdom of priests, it didn't work. For, it, didn't, it didn't end up happening yet. And then when you get to the New Testament, Peter says that we are now a kingdom of, of priests. You know, we, we help bring people to God. In that sense, we're a priest, but also we, we worship God. And that's what's happening here a kingdom of priests. And it says they will reign on the earth. And I'm convinced, again, we're going to reign on the earth. Now, if you want to know what that is like or get some description of that, you, you look at the parables in Matthew. Because Jesus describes a lot of parables uh, about things. The kingdom of heaven will be like this or that. And I believe he's describing to some degree what it's gonna be like in the millennial kingdom. And you read a lot about this idea that if you're faithful with what God gave you in this life, in the next, he'll give you greater responsibility. Why think that's gonna be in the millennial kingdom when that's gonna happen? Verse 11, then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. This sounds like Daniel again. Daniel described a scene where there are ten thousand times ten thousand, all these angels, and that's what's happening here. Basically, this crowd is growing as this this worship ceremony is happening. More and more people are getting involved. More of God's creation is getting involved. All are going to be part of what's about to unfold. And again, this is very similar to um, Daniel seven and verse ten. We read earlier, thousands upon thousands served him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was convened and the books were open. And of course, this is the same context where the son of man is ushered into his presence. It's the exact same scene. Continuing in Revelation 5 and verse 12, they said with a loud voice, the lamb who was slaughtered is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. By the way, they said it earlier, they were, they were singing. But this is almost like the angels are chanting this. They're saying this, repeating this. Glory and honor. He is worthy to receive power, authority, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. These are, by the way, good things to put in your own prayer to God. Verses 13 and 14 I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, Under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say blessing and honor and glory and dominion to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Putting those two in the same sentence, by the way, makes them both divine. And then it says, the four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. And again, that's what's gonna happen in the book of Philippians. So again, all of this is setting up what's gonna take place in the next chapter. It's really in some ways answering the question, is it right for God to judge the world? Because people struggle with that. I mean, I've run into people all the time. They just struggle with the idea that God would be a God of justice and, and judgment and God is only a God of, of love. But this is setting up a, theme, a, a, a scene where he created everything and Jesus bought everything and they're getting ready in their holiness to judge the world. So, that was a fast 45 minutes for me anyway. Might have been slow for you, I don't know. I wanna open it up for uh, questions. I do not see the mics, are they here? Or do you have them? Oh, look at that, they're so on top of things. So I thought there'd be a a time to do this. By the way, next week um, is the night of worship, and so we won't be having the Revelation study. So if you know others that are coming, Please tell them that next week uh, is the night of worship. You can come, I mean, please come to that as well. But then we're gonna hit it on the other side. We're gonna begin talking about what Jesus talked about. I'm gonna talk about Matthew, line it up with Revelation and demonstrate that Jesus and John are describing exactly the same scene as we begin to get, uh, the tribulation begins to kick off. So, okay, questions? Okay, Uh, in your timeline, on uh, the first part that you dealt Where am I looking? Up here. Oh, they're okay. <laughs> okay. okay. I heard a voice. <laughs> uh, and people who think that the uh, rapture would come after the first, it seems illogical because if the rest of them are signs for the Christians, then wouldn't we have to witness those? Uh, you, you I don't speak. know if I'm understanding the question. Okay, the, the, when you went through the the page five, the, yes, the, the time. And, and you said, I talk about the rapture. Yeah, you said in some field, the the in the first number one the rapture Yes, will it's occur. right. Yeah, it's right after the church age. Everything after that is a, is a sign for Christians, and it seems illogical that we would not see those signs if we were raptured. Well, the answer that people from the more, more trib position would say is that, that those, uh, all those things that are written in the rest of Revelation are not intended for Christians now. They are intended for the Jewish nation, that this is really the rebirth of what God is stirring up among the Jewish nation. And then they go to Matthew and say the same thing. Jesus is speaking to the Jewish people, not to us. But I, I agree with you. I, I think... Uh, I I think we're gonna witness some of this. And if you were here, one of the weeks I talked about 1 Thessalonians where where the believers asked whether or not the rumor they had heard that Jesus had come back was true or not. And Paul's response to those believers was no. But what he should have said if it was a pre-trib rapture is he should have said no because you're still here. I mean, why would you think the rapture happened? I mean, why would you think the Lord came back? You're still here. But... Paul goes on to say, no, that can't even happen until this Antichrist is signs this agreement and breaks the agreement after the three and a half year period. So Paul, I think, is he's speaking to Gentiles, he's speaking to Christians, and he's saying, he's implying that we're gonna witness it. We're gonna be there and see this agreement that's being made, so, okay, yep, Yeah, I um, wonder if you could speak to a probability that the church is gonna, finish strong um, that the gospel of the kingdom is going to go out throughout the whole world and it's specifically um, Matthew 13:39, 39 where Jesus talks about a harvest at the end of the age yes. and then in Ephesians 4 it talks about us becoming mature a strong man and the um, the bride will be without spot or wrinkle and um, you know and then we'll become one this Is John 17 and then finally uh, the two witnesses at the end of the age. Yes. Okay, yeah. um, Yeah, I think the gospel is gonna go out boldly during that time, but I don't know that that's a reflection of how the church is gonna be. I I really think what's gonna happen is that some of these events are gonna draw lines, and I think Christians who believe that this is really the end times are gonna be viewed as being really psycho. I don't think people are gonna believe it, but I'm convinced that those two witnesses that begin preaching, I think Christians will recognize who they are, and I think there's gonna be one group of Christians that are gonna get incredibly bold and preach the gospel. By the way, I think part of the gospel going to the ends of the earth is gonna be the technology that makes it possible. Uh, The whole world is gonna be watching them preach even on TV. You know, for three and a half years they're going to be preaching. So, um, but I think it's going to rally Christians to be about evangelism. But I think there's going to be a bunch of other people that are going to be ashamed of Christ, and I don't think they're going to have the courage to stand up. But yeah, there's there's going to be a um, tremendous evangelistic effort at the end of the age. I think so. Okay, we're kind of going side to side, but maybe. I went so long last week that I wanted to make sure. Oh, here, okay. Oh, not Jim. (laughs) Just kidding. I just kind of want to skip to Matthew 24. Okay. um, Because we're talking about how terrible things are going to be. The thing that always struck me when Jesus talks um, in verse, he he compares the end of time to, to the coming of, to, to the time of Noah.
1: Yes, and, and then, as and they, it was in the days and, of Noah, so yeah. it'll be.
0: Um, and uh, for in those days before the flood, and this is talking about the flood, but he's comparing it. They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. And I always think if things are that terrible, this kind, this verse kind of sounds like, oh, everybody's just going to go on what they're normally doing. And I, and I always try to figure out, is, am I, is that is that really talking about the second coming well i think the main issue that he's addressing in that section is the fact that they're going to be totally unaware it's not necessarily speaking to the conditions of the world i think though for most of the world it's not going to be that bad the first three and a half years um there are going to be all these wars rumors of wars all those other things and jesus says it's like the beginning of birth pangs so it's going to get worse as time goes on and things are gonna come closer together. But in some ways, it's not gonna be horrible. When we talk about the tribulation or the great tribulation, the main reason it's tribulation is the persecution that's unleashed by the Antichrist. And these people, they're gonna get the mark of the beast. And, and so I think, they're, and, and they're gonna to wanna to kill all Christians uh, who won't get the mark or any believers that are here, whatever. So that's the group it's gonna be hard for But the one group is gonna be aware. They're not gonna be caught off guard like a thief in the night, and the other group will be unaware. They're gonna be eating and drinking, and things have always been like this. And then the end's gonna come, and judgment is gonna hit. So they'll be surprised by it. Okay, yeah. Um, I'm curious about, can you explain the the, uh, phrase, those who are under the earth? It says those who are on the earth and those who are under the earth. Uh, that could be where uh, many people think that's where Hades is. Uh, we don't know for sure, but but and this has been, I think, an ancient idea that Hades is under the earth, and and it wasn't just even. Um, I mean, it's in the ancient world they believe that Hades itself, there's a place, an actual place, of, called Hades. And it's a hole that goes down, and they just think that's where it is. So it's quite possible that that's a reference to those who have died. And now it does have them giving glory to God, but as we're gonna find out from Matthew, uh, I think it's gonna be feigned obedience. I think they're gonna have to give glory to Christ, but they're not gonna want to. I don't think they're gonna wanna do it. They're gonna have to, though. So Psalm 2 talks about that. By the way, bow down before him lest he get angry. You know, so... Are there any more on this side? All right, well, good, then we'll get out early. I prefer to be 45 minutes and then do questions because it can be a little too much, or I feel, for you, that's fine for me, but it just feels like a lot. Uh, So again, next week, night of worship. Following week, we're gonna get into, start talking about chapter 6. And, uh, and we'll be comparing it with Matthew. So why don't we, cl- oh, do you have a question? Oh, why don't we close in prayer then? Father, um, we do look to you, give us grace, and again, help us to apply these things to really that it would impact how we live our lives. Uh, because we don't wanna be ashamed at the coming of your son. We wanna be ready, and, and Lord, we wanna be used by you to, to reach people for Christ. We want, as Peter said, to live holy and righteous lives knowing that this is the outcome, this is where things are headed. Help us with these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.